Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleagues Adam Belmar, John Easton, and special guest Gail Osterberg. Gail is Director of Communications for the Library of Congress, the largest and most important library in the world. Right, Gail? I endorse that theory. Yes, yes, right, yes absolutely. Right. Before joining the library, she founded her own public relations firm, 133 Public Affairs. She also worked with me at the Motion Picture Association and was a longtime spokesperson for Senator Don Nichols in his leadership office and when he was chairman of the Budget Committee. She's a graduate of the University of Kansas. Go Jayhawks. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Gail's also a very, very close personal friend and is known by my children as Aunt Gail. That's my most favorite title. That's a actually. great title, and it's very appropriate. Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, Gail Osterberg. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here it's with you It's great to have you here. Theory one, the Library of Congress is freaking awesome. When I was a staff member, especially when I first came to the Hill, I spent a lot of quality time at the Library of Congress. I took classes there on parliamentary procedure. I did legislative research. I read all of their briefing materials. I went to leadership meetings in the Jefferson Building, and here's my theory. The Library of Congress is essential to a functioning Congress, which means it is essential to our democracy. Gail, what is the coolest thing you have done in your job as communications director for the Library of Congress? Well, I would just, I'd like to start by thanking you again for having me. This is really exciting. And also to, again, endorse your theories about the library. <laughs> I mean, these are great theories. Um, the library is essential to democracy. Um, knowledge is, uh, an informed citizenry is essential to a democracy, whether you are starting with the elected representatives of those citizens, our members of Congress, or citizens themselves. And the library serves all of those people. So it's a really wonderful institution, I think summed up very well. The library is freaking awesome. <laughs> so to your question about the coolest thing I've done in my job, I really enjoy sharing the library with different audiences. So I love to do things like have members of the media there, showing them collections. I was able to be the Vanna White of the library with CBS Sunday. That was so um, cool. That was such a great episode. Martha Teichner. It was really exciting. I love that show. So that was kind of a dream come true to be a part of that. Um, and also the National Book Festival, which we host every year. Last year we had author Stephen King there, and we were able to stream live on Facebook for the first time his presentation. And I'd had a chance to meet him backstage and meet him in the media room. And so when he did his talk, I actually stayed in the media room and watched it live on the laptop because it was just so fun to see all the likes and the comments and the engagement with people and really see that it was you know, working to have people out there beyond the limits of Washington getting to enjoy this great library programming. And then finally, if really just to pick one thing that I'm most proud of, it would probably be working to welcome our new librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, who was sworn in a year ago, September, and uh, she is the first woman, the first African-American to serve as librarian of Congress, and also only the third professional librarian to serve as the librarian of Congress. And it was such a wonderful historic moment for the institution. We really worked hard to take advantage of that moment in history to introduce her, but also to reintroduce the institution to the nation. 
Uh, Adam Belmar, you have a really good story about Library of Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about it? <clears throat> well, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and I grew up to do what I wanted to do, which was to be a television producer. And I worked at Good Morning America as a producer and then as the senior producer for the show in Washington for many years. And that afforded me this great opportunity to go behind the scenes and to see all of these great places and elements of Washington that most of us never get to see. And in 2005, we were trying to figure out, this was right at the transition, Gail, from standard definition to high definition. So it was still a big deal for folks. And ABC News did the first broadcast of Good Morning America in a high definition from the Library of Congress on the occasion of George W. Bush's second inaugural, January 20th, 2005. And uh, as we were talking, we worked with one of the folks on your staff, uh, Cheryl Kennedy, <clears throat> and others. And the Jefferson Building is phenomenal. But that you get to see it in high definition and have it lit up and have all of these great members of political Washington. I remember having um, Senator McCain there. Senator Biden was there. We interviewed uh, the Poet Laureate and took people behind the scenes. It is the kind of thing that people do get to when they come to Washington on field trips, but it can never be seen or understood or appreciated enough. So when national television networks get to utilize the, the gorgeous historic backdrop of the Jefferson Building, that was an honor and a treat for me and one of my favorite experiences with the Library of Congress. So John Easton, um you know, my kids, my, especially my young daughter, goes to the, the reading room, for the, the children's reading room. Great place for kids to check out stuff. Uh, but you, your daughter had kind of an experience at the Library of Congress. Can you tell us about it? She did. This is my youngest, Lila Easton, who uh, <laughs> entered a contest called A Book That Shaped Me with last year. So she was a rising fifth grader, and she entered the contest. And what this is is an essay on a book that had an impact on your life. And she wrote on a book, and it's called Where the, the Mountain Meets the Moon by Grace Lynn. And it was a be beautifully written essay, I must say myself. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she, was a she was a DC finalist. And so she got to go to your wonderfully produced and organized uh, book festival. Is that what it's called, book festival? The National Book Festival. National Book Festival at the Washington Convention Center. It's huge. And just to walk around it is really a treat. And it's, it's really a gem that not everybody knows about in the city or around the country. But thanks to Gail, I think they are, they're getting to know about it. But not only inside, but outside the Library of Congress, let me tell you, we are neighbors of both the Adams Building and the Jefferson Building. And my two older girls, Ava and Isabel, learned how to ride their bike on the beautiful pathways outside the Jefferson Building that run through the garden and the grass, and uh, so that will forever be imprinted on my mind. I know theirs as well. So I am a huge fan of Library of Congress. So Library of Congress uh, was started with the donation from Thomas Jefferson, right? I mean, he had to get rid of some of his books, and he started the Library of Congress with his, his stuff. And this, this thing goes back a long ways. What else do you want to tell us about the library? Like, your time there, I think you have a top ten list or something? Well, I do. So I love, I love all of your connections with the Library of Congress. And I think many people come to visit the Jefferson Building in Washington. And it is one of the most beautiful buildings oh, in the city. Oh, without a doubt. That's absolutely true. But that is only a small part of the story. There are Indeed. so many things for 
people to do and engage with and connect with at the library. And so I, I did bring, um, it's a bit of a top 10 list, which I thought every, you know, every broadcast really loves a top 10 list. And so I... I, I, I love a guest who's really prepared. <laughs> That's awesome. I really wanted to bring, you know, something yeah, special. I, I really hope this doesn't suck. <laughs> no, I don't. I hope not. I don't think so. So, you know, these are all very accessible things that anybody can do to engage with the library. So one is to watch the National Book Festival main stage. We streamed the entire thing live. It's on our Facebook page. You can see authors like David McCullough, Condoleezza Rice, uh, J.D. Vance, others. So everyone should watch that. They're great presentations. You should download an issue of the Library of Congress magazine. We have a magazine that is bi-monthly. I've actually brought our latest issue, which is on comic books. Most people don't know the library has the world's largest collection of comic books. And who I think, knew? I did not know that. Who knew? These are things you didn't know. Not surprised. You could go on our website and you can zoom in on an historic Civil War map. Many, many maps. We have the world's largest map collection. And many of these maps... Now, is that new? I mean, the digitization of the assets of the Library of Congress is something that's been going on. But it's not just about preserving them. It's about making them accessible to all Americans. Absolutely, and it's something the library has been doing for a long time, but certainly as technology has improved, there are improved features. So there yeah. are better ways of searching, there's better ways of do that Zoom feature that I mm -hmm. was talking about that really make an object, you can see it even better online than if you were looking at it in person because you can zoom in on details and, and that sort of thing. So then you can read Alexander Hamilton's letter to his wife that he wrote right before he went to his famous duel. We recently put the papers of Alexander Hamilton online for the first time. As uh, featured in, in the great musical Hamilton, is that right? Absolutely. Oh, Hamilton, go. of course, is having a, a cultural moment. He's like a <laughs> bit of a rock star, Broadway star, everything else. Something um, very relevant, I think, probably to your listeners, you should create an account on congress.gov. So congress.gov is the official source of free legislative federal information. Mm -hmm. All the bills, congressional hearings, you can watch those. Um, you can look at the congressional record. You can create an account for yourself, and you can set up alerts to track different bills that you're interested in. So very important. I use it. You can participate. So for some of your digitally-minded um, listeners, you can participate in our new crowdsourcing project. Which is related to our historic newspaper collection. They can animate images from our free to use and reuse section on our homepage and record an oral history for the Veterans History Project. Find a veteran in your life. This is a really important program um, that was created by Congress. So, so talking about that, uh, did anyone watch, and I'll, we'll get back to the list, anyone watch the, the fascinating Ken Burns series on um, Vietnam? Still going through it right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, it's still working unbelievable on it. series. And you know what was interesting about that is all the veterans who talked and were yeah. interviewed by Ken Burns. Really, I mean, if you want to understand Vietnam, you should check that out. As you're, and you should participate in this veteran series. Both on the United States side, right, and the Vietnamese side. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, no, and, and one thing, um, episode three, I don't know if you've gotten there yet, but the family that was featured, the veteran that was featured on that episode, the Crocker family, they found that story in the Veterans History Project. Wow. And um, Mogi's mom wrote a memoir about her son that she contributed to the Veterans History Project. It's on our website. Wow. You can read it. It's over 450 pages, and I've read just a few pages after I learned that that was the source of that story, and it's really moving. Um, so then, on, on, the lighter, on the lighter side, you can make Rosa Parks feather light pancakes. 
this is something that is an unexpected way to engage with the library's collections, <laughs> but we have the papers of Rosa Parks. We have a recipe that was with her papers, and I will tell you the secret ingredient is peanut butter, hmm. and they're amazing. Hmm. And then I would also suggest <laughs> that everyone follow the Librarian of Congress on Twitter. Because she that I do do. She um, is really enjoying do do. her her <laughs> early years at the library. She's going around and learning about the different collections and uh, and tweeting about them as she discovers things. That yeah, I do her. follow. I follow Gail Osterberg on Twitter. I will uh, follow the, the librarian, but I like to follow you because you give us good stuff. And I have, you know I follow you and you you tweet. And then um, you give me good ideas and some stuff to do with my kids, so I like that. Oh, excellent. Yes. I'm so glad. So well, before we finish this up in the Library of Congress, um, what is your favorite movie that has the Library of Congress in the movie? Hmm. Well, probably probably the classic All the Presidents. That's right. That, 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 yeah, that. I mean, that's kind of a... I mean, that's a pretty expected answer. Certainly National Treasure, Book of Secrets mm-hmm. 2. That was uh, that was filmed um, at the library. Yeah, it was. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I like the classics. So I'd go with All the President's Men. I think I'd go the same thing. So, folks, if you're from out of town, check out the Library of Congress. It's an institution that keeps America, you know, keeps Congress informed, which helps American democracy. Essential function. Thank you, Gail, for that. Theory two, no budget, no tax cut. Earlier this week, the big six unveiled their plans to cut taxes and get the president's legislative agenda moving again. But one thing stands in the way. They have to pass a budget first. Here's my theory. With the failure of health care, Republicans now have to get their act together if they want to stay in the majority. They will do their budget before the end of October and pass their tax cut before Thanksgiving, you heard it here first. John Easton, am I full of smoke or am I on target? You're half full of smoke. <laughs> You're half on target. I think the good news is, is that the, the Senate budget was released today out of Gail's former stomping grounds, the Senate Budget Committee, which means that it will be marked, out, marked up and reported out of committee next Wednesday and Thursday. That sets the stage for, because it gives instructions for the tax bill, it sets the stage for passage of a tax reform bill, not before Thanksgiving. John, give me a break. I mean, this is Congress. This is the United States Senate. I would say, though, that the Finance Committee of the United States Senate is going to go first on the tax bill. I will predict that because the House is getting a little skittish. The Ways and Means Committee does not want to lead on this. They're going to have to get it off the floor in some way, shape, or form first, because that's by law. But I think that the, the Senate Finance Committee, you're going to see a product out of there first. It's going to give a little bit of protection for the House members before they get all chaotic over there with, with uh, factions of their caucus. But I do believe that the budget that is going to be passed on the Senate floor, likely in mid-October, is going to give a lot of momentum for this tax bill, and I do believe its chances of passing at least one chamber is is strong. Uh, but I think they need to do both chambers before they get out of here at Christmas time. So you think it's going to be a Christmas present to the American people? I asked that question yesterday of some high-ranking t- tax staff members, and they said no, it's Thanksgiving. But you're probably right. And I'm talking about how this thing was rolled out yesterday. Yeah. Um, 
you you actually watched it. Uh, you watched the uh, speech by Kevin Brady. There was some annoying person who asked a question at the end of it, but we won't talk about that. Um, could you talk a little bit about the rollout? Did you think it was a good rollout for the tax cut, or what, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I, it is so important to make the case in a clean and accurate way for what this intends to do and how it's going to impact uh, workers, families, businesses, American competitiveness. And so the, the administration, the big six, um, I think came together and did a good job of fanning out yesterday to do this. Um, what went well was the chairman, Kevin Brady, gave an excellent speech, perhaps the best speech on this topic, and he's been talking about it for a long time, that I have ever heard. Incisive, informative, and very compassionate about the goals and how we're going to get there. He did that to the Heritage Foundation. And you also had the Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who has been accused of being a bit out of touch. Um, we, we've talked previously. You did see the gold at Fort Knox, which I thought was pretty cool. Right. We, we've, <laughs> we've, we've spoken previously about his disconnect with the American people and, and his problems with the use of uh, government jets. But I thought he did a very good job yesterday of explaining this and not being baited by the press. However, in the infinite wisdom of the White House, Gary Cohen, who is the least good <laughs> communicator of the bunch, was tasked with, with going out and making a statement at the beginning of the uh, White House press briefing with Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday. And he really botched it. He's argumentative. He's a bit condescending. And he did not do a very good job. I spoke to people who were in the room, friends, journalists who were there, and they were just perplexed. I mean, there was nothing that was entirely um, honest and open. It was very defensive. It was, let me just say this over and over and over again. He wasn't hearing. He wasn't uh, communicating answers to actual questions that were asked. And so I think he probably got a little bit more... Uh, vision than a lot of other people because of where he was and when he said it, and I thought that was very unfortunate. I will also say that the president has been out to do a couple of events, and he spoke just today to the National Association of Manufacturers. And I get that the president can be a good spokesman and that he's usually very high level. But I have to say, I see nothing positive about what President Trump has brought to the table thus far on explaining the tax reforms. It's too broad. It doesn't get into the substance. And the basic top-line message about competitiveness is good only if you can follow it up and help people understand how this program is going to get that to come um, and have an impact on workers and on wages. Yeah. So the rollout was well-conceived, mediocre in its execution, and in the end, I, I would say, has left the American people in Congress wanting, they better keep at it. So, Gail, um, you were at the Budget Committee the last time Congress passed a major tax cut. I remember because I was there with you. I was on the other side of the aisle. You were on the Senate side. I was on the House side. Um, she was in the upper chamber. She was in the chamber that's over there. I was in the People's <laughs> House, you know, representing the people of America. Um, so... 
walk through the budget process. You, you've been there. You know how painful it can be. And without a budget, you don't get to the tax cuts, right? Well, one of the points that I think is important is that there is a budget that's been introduced and that they're having this conversation. Budgets are really important for, for all parts of life. And at the federal government level, that's where you have these debates about priorities and, and, and the direction for the country. So just the process of, of going through the, the hearings and, um, and having these debates is an important part of governance. And it's really good to see them moving in that direction. The budget also provides, um, as John was explaining earlier, the opportunity for things like reconciliation instructions. It creates a framework where you can bring up budget points of order throughout the year if there's legislation that goes beyond what the budget set out. So it is an important document in governance. And, uh, go ahead, John. Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and beyond what Adam was talking about in terms of the, of the upper-level salesmanship of the tax reform package, I think what's really going to be important is how the sausage making of this. And, and I think there, to, to John's point about the health care reform and how that's affected everything uh, in Washington right now, because it was, it's, it's failed twice, you know, both efforts failed. I think there are going to be lessons learned from the health care experience. And that, and that is this. If, if you can't win on your provision in 75 days, then you got to move on. Because we can't get to the end of this process with where we were with Mitch McConnell, which was not sure we got the votes. Yeah, one or two, McCain, Murkowski, not sure. We just can't, we can't be there. And so if, if, whether it's the mortgage deduction, whether it's state and local tax deduction, we got to figure this out so that, you know, midway through the process, it's either it's in, it's out, but let's move on. And if we don't do that, if Congress does not do that, the Republican caucus doesn't do that, they're going to be in a world of hurt come December. So, um, Gail, one thing I would mention, I think the, the House is in a different position on the budget than the Senate, which is not that unusual. But the House wants to address in the budget entitlement reforms, which they've already, they've already passed the budget through the, the, the budget committee. They've been holding on for a while. But that includes a lot of cuts to entitlement programs to allow for the tax cut. They don't have those entitlement cuts in the Senate process. How do, you, how do you reconcile? Do you need to reconcile that? Or do, is budgets passing both bodies, is that enough? It really, you need it to pass both in order to get to that place where the um, reconciliation instructions have teeth and where the points of order have teeth. So, um, you know, that's, that's part of every major legislative um, initiative that goes through Congress. It's passed on either side. They get together. There's a conference committee that works out the differences, hopefully, and then they go back to either chamber for a final vote. And then, you know, you have something that really can, um, you know, provide a framework for moving forward and, again, setting priorities for the country. And, and importantly, the budget is not signed by the president. So you can do this stuff without the president even being part of it. That's a little bit more uh, important when you have a president of a different party because you know, I think Trump will, by and large, support this budget no matter what, as long as he gets his tax cuts. Adam? You know, I, I just was going to say I, I, I'm not the one at this table to make any predictions about whether this can or cannot get done. I'm, I'm listening to what, and not done in total, but done this year, and I'm, I'm thinking about what both John Fury and John Easton have said about this. I just want to ask the question, and, and John, John Easton alluded to this, People have been sort of hearing this cry, wolf, we're going to get this done, we're going to get this done. I, I honestly don't think anybody really believes with this track record 
that they will be able to get this done this year. It would be a pleasant surprise if they did. But my question is, are they creating a problem by trying to force it? Is there, are they getting the, 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 the sort of Irish up of the Democrats who are saying, you haven't let us in until now, and we're just not going to let you have a win, and that they, you know, this is how I look at the Democrats as part of this process. I think the Democrats will provide the 51st vote. I don't think they'll – and then I think they'll provide six or seven more votes after that in the Senate, but they will not provide the vote that gets him over the top. And I say that because you see the president going to, you know, Indiana and right. talk about Joe Donnelly or go to North Dakota and talk about Heidi Heitkamp, talk to Clara McCaskill. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell would be really happy – of all those Democrats voted against this tax package because he doesn't really want their votes. And he wants to be in them to be on record saying vote no because I think that for Mitch McConnell, he'd like to run against these Democrats and beat them in the next election. That being said, I think these Democrats are all going to vote for this package. And that's why I think it's going to get done. And to John, to your point, that right now is when all the special interests come out and say we don't want this. But if they want to get a tax cut, they've got to stand down – and let the process work work through. And I think that the Senate negotiators and the House negotiators are more than happy to, to listen to the concerns of the outside groups. But for the good of the country, we've got to pass this tax cut. Yeah, that's right. And I think what the leaders are saying right now is no red lines, no no, just you know, lines in the sand, can't do this, can't do it now, can't do it ever. Just hold, hold, keep your powder dry, and let's talk through these things. But as I said before, you've got to get to a place where it's either fish or cut bait on some – particularly the major provisions of the, of the tax bill, these, these deductions. And, Gail, I, I want to take us back to uh, those days when Don Nichols was chairman of the Senate Budget Committee and Denny Hastert was the Speaker of the House. And remember what happened. The Senate cut a deal on a tax cut number without telling the Speaker, and it was half the cut. It was half the, the, the price tag. This is what happens sometimes between the House and Senate. You can have, and this is back when we had President Bush and we had a fully functioning legislative branch and executive branch, and there was still this miscommunication. You remember that? I do remember that very well, and I think that those are the type of things that happen as part of the process. You have your your leadership on on in both parties and on both sides of the aisle that are working to understand where their caucuses are, what their caucuses comfort level is with different provisions, and, and hopefully can come to some agreement. That's the, that's the democratic process. There's a, there's a chance that when they come out of this, hopefully in December, there, there'll, there'll be a, a package that the Senate and the House majorities will hate each other more than they ever have. Uh, that's a definite possibility. I will also make the observation that the Senate got its way on the number but Bill Thomas, who was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, was able to craft the tax bill in such a way that he crammed a lot of taxes in a few years, and so both sides were able to win. But ultimately, I do think that this, the Senate's going to decide because they, by and large, are the biggest, you know, they have the, the, the voting restrictions, and they only have 52 votes. And even in 2003, they didn't have that many. I think it was like 50-50, right? I think that's right. So very close. It was a while ago. A while, while, a long time, time ago. Flies. 2003, that sounds like it was recently, but it really was not. It really was not. I, I think I didn't even have any children back then. Theory three, return of the big hitters. This week marked the return of two big hitters, Steve Scalise and Bryce Harper. Scalise, the House Majority Whip, came back to the House of Representatives 
in an emotional return that surprised his colleagues, especially House Speaker Paul Ryan. He's still recovering from the devastating wounds suffered when a deranged Bernie Sanders supporter shot him as he practiced for the annual congressional baseball game. Bryce Harper also came back this week from injuries he suffered when he slipped across first base as he ran to beat out a throw and hyperextended his knee. Here's my theory. Both Scalise and Harper are vitally important parts to their teams, and their returns will excite their teammates and help them lead their teams to victory this fall. Um, Adam, you worked with Steve Scalise uh, on some projects, um, and I just think that you know watching his return, so emotional, really brought the whole house together. Um, Scalise is just a great guy. It, first of all, I have greatly enjoyed the time that I've spent with uh, with Steve Scalise. He's great to work with. He's very interested and um, takes a great deal of energy to work with you when, when you're when you're actually with him and. And that just have always made me feel uh, very good about whatever work I've done with him or for him. But I watched yesterday with great uh, attention his return to the chamber. And it was just so heartwarming. Um, There was so much energy in that room. People were so grateful, praising the Lord, uh, recognizing uh, his family. And you, you could see how much he's gone through. He brought a great deal of energy to his speech yesterday, but he's moving slow. He's not 100% the man that he was before, but he did talk a little bit about getting back onto the things that need to get done. He talked about the people who sacrificed themselves and the detail that was there that turned that tragedy into something that uh, was at least recoverable uh, and not just a mass execution and uh, to see his wife there and to see the speaker embrace him and, and uh, the minority leader, uh, just uh, we saw this with Gabby Giffords, and I hope that the tone that we saw yesterday can continue to persist and just keep people on message about we can be disagree, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Yeah, John, you know, you know uh, very well Steve Scalise's chief of staff, or former chief of staff, Linnell Ruckert, you know, when you have these type of moments where it really brings people together, do you, you think this bipartisanship, that brief moment, can it, can it last? Unfortunately, the, the, these tragedies um, do tend to bring the uh, either chamber or both chambers together in, in such a way. There was a lot of grace in that in that in that moment in that speech yesterday, and you could just feel. I watched the whole thing, and it was it was hard to you know keep a dry eye there, but. Uh, I, I do believe there are a lot of moments in the, in, the, in the Senate and in the House that are not quite that dramatic, but there are a lot of special moments. And I think it are those, those types of moments that actually keep these members together, keep them bonded in such a way that even though that the, the country is very divided politically, uh, you know, we've got these kind of cultural wars happening, and it's, and it's really ratcheting up the heat uh, on these members when, they, when they're back home and what they're hearing – uh, and what, what we're hearing through the media, it's just a really tense time. But I think that these moments, like the Scalise uh, floor speech yesterday, um, are really, really important for, for Congress, and, and I think it is actually keeping them together. Can, can I just ask you, what does it do for staff? I mean, I realize everyone takes uh, their, their morale from their office, but 
I imagine this this really transcends and it touches everyone from the member level down. Is that true? What is your experience? It's true because certainly for the Scalise staff, I mean, the, the kind of outpouring that they've received from uh, fellow staff on the Hill or from folks back home or from friends, it's just uh, it's it's very very heartwarming to them. And I do think it, it tends to be some glue uh, within the institution for them too. I, I agree with that. I mean, I would say the vast majority of staff in the United States Congress uh, are, are folks that are there to, to, to serve and to get things done. Uh, I don't think that the majority are hyper-partisan. I actually think that, that they are there and to reach across the aisle and to work with whoever they can to get their boss's agenda done. But uh, these moments help them too, absolutely. Gail? I just would agree. I think it was a really beautiful moment, and I think, um, you know, I, I hope that that, that that tone, you know, can continue. But it's also a reminder that, you know, these elected leaders, they have a really difficult job, as do their staff. These are incredibly dedicated public servants. They often serve, you know, very late hours. They often serve on weekends. They are traveling back and forth, working with their constituents. And, and they are juggling a lot of different and diverse and complicated issues. And so I think it's just an important moment as well to appreciate um, our elected leaders and what they do for our country, even even when it's not perfect and even when there are, you know, tensions on both sides over various things. These are very important um, uh, this is very important work that they're doing. I saw one thing that I wanted to call out. There were a couple of children that were in the well of the Senate. That, they may have been House Scalise's. Yeah, in the House. I, yeah, in the House. I, I misspoke. You're right. Um, He's such a House guy. The, uh, <laughs> they were wearing shorts, and they were wearing, um, I think one of them had a T-shirt on, and it just occurred to me that culturally things have changed. They They've changed in different cities. They've changed in Washington. But to see family included there, and they're not dressed up in, in sort of that uncomfortable coat and tie that sometimes kids don't want to wear and they're not familiar with. But it, it just made me feel uh, a little bit like, yeah, they seem at ease there, and members were patting them on the shoulder. And I, I love it when I see real family um, being respected uh in the Congress, and it was just a nice little visual element yesterday. And of course, Scalise is a baseball player, and another baseball player starting his return, Bryce Harper, uh, getting to the Nationals. Nice uh, and a nice transition. You like the transition? <laughs> we love that transition, John. And I tell you, Bryce Harper is, is, is not 100% yet, uh, but he seems pretty strong, Gail. I know that you are as big a baseball fan as anybody I know. You're a huge Nationals fan. What are your Love thoughts? The Nationals, it's great to see him back. We've missed him. I think the team has done a great job in his absence, really you know, continuing to move forward and build toward the postseason. And I'm excited. I'm ready for October. Are you ready for October, John Eason? I am ready for October. I am ready for Harper back in a big way because he is such a factor to the opposing team. They, he's always present in their minds, whether he is – three away from being up or whether he's at the plate. It is factoring into the manager's decision. It's factoring into the every player in that field uh, the, of the opposing team. I can't wait for this to start. Now, Adam, I know that you're not that huge of a baseball fan. You, 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 what's that team you like, the Redskins? You know what? I've been taking <laughs> so much crap about my Redskins. But did they did, – hey, did you watch? Did you see what happened in Washington at FedEx Field on Sunday night? It was really inspiring. I'm excited. 
Hail to the Redskins. Hail to you, Topher Cushman. I, and Topher Cushman is going to be here tonight. The Concerned Fathers will be here tonight uh, of St. Peter's. We're all going to take a trip to a Nationals Park together. It's going to be great. Uh, Father Gary will be here to, to, to help us at EFB Worldwide Headquarters. I'm very excited about that. But, Gail, I want to just make one mention that you do have another team that you care a lot about. I really do, and I appreciate that, John. This week also was media day for the National Basketball Association, and I am really looking forward to the new look of the 2017-18 Oklahoma City Thunder. Mm. I think that everyone should get on the bandwagon now if you're Is not already. Is there something wrong with their old after, look? <laughs> after Russell Westbrook's MVP season, they have added two all-stars to their lineup in Paul George and Carmelo Anthony, oh, yeah. and we are ready to go after the Golden State Warriors, and it's going to be an exciting season. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're excited about that. I'm a little bit more excited about the Washington Nationals with Bryce Harper coming back. I will make one final mention. Um, John Easton, we have these beautiful flowers here. Could you tell us about the flowers? Sure can. Uh, these are brought to you by Blue Iris of Eastern Market. Uh, these wonderful ladies, uh, florists at Eastern Market, produce these. This is the second time that they have brought uh, arrangements to EFB Worldwide Headquarters events. And they just do an outstanding job. Anytime we only use them because of what you see in front of you. If those of you who don't see them, they're gorgeous. So Blue Iris, Eastern Market, use them often. Well, let me just jump in. Keeping these flowers looking beautiful takes some work. Blue Iris <laughs> did it. But if, you, if you're here late at night, you will see John Easton taking time as he right. does because he's just a meticulous soul on everything that he does. But he took great care of these. He's put them in places where he thought they could bring a little bit of joy. You didn't know that, Gail? Do you refresh the water? You bet he does. <laughs> clip the stems? I, I need to clip the stems. That's and, really and now that you're here today, maybe beautiful. you can help me a little bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted. I'm I was delighted. carrying water by the bucket load yesterday out to the balcony. And, uh, you know, okay, that's what Belmar does. But the real <laughs> fine, pretty stuff... <laughs> Well, thank you all for joining us today at the Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. I will say, Gail Osberg, it's been a delight to have you on. It's been been wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Welcome once again to EFB Worldwide Headquarters. EFB stands for Excellent for Business. Yeah, baby.